Let's pray and ask God to speak to us and through His Word today. Heavenly Father, we've jumped in, Lord, in this series now for a few weeks talking about being all in, specifically all in in our walk with You. And Lord, sometimes we start talking about that. That means we want to raise the bar. We're challenged with that. And then sometimes, Lord, the evil one will raise up his ugly head and try to prevent us from going all in or trying to raise the bar in our spiritual and our walk and our walk with Jesus. And so, God, I just pray that you help us to battle back. Help us to be people who stand in your word, stand in prayer, stand faithful, stand with the belt of truth buckled around our waist, that we would take our stand against the devil, take our stand against his evil scheming, and do battle, Father. Because you have more for us, you have more desires for us as we consider what does it mean for each and every one of us in this room to be all in for Jesus. So, Father, I pray today you speak to us through your scripture Speak to us through the preaching of your word. Lord, it amazes me that you use the, what you call the foolishness of preaching to change hearts and minds. I pray, Lord, you do that work in this room today. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. It was February 19th, 1519, and the Spanish explorer Hernan Cortes set sail for Mexico with an entourage of 11 ships, 13 horses, 110 sailors, and 553 soldiers. Now the indigenous population upon his arrival was approximately 5 million people. And the odds were stacked against them that they'll be able to arrive there and take any kind of land and be able to set up their community because they're outnumbered to a ratio of 7,541 to 1. Two previous expeditions had failed to even establish a settlement in the New World, yet Cortes conquered much of the South American continent. And what Cortes did after landing is an epic tale of mythical proportions. He issues an order that turned his mission into an all-or-nothing proposition. They arrive upon the banks, and once they unload and get off of their ships, his order was, burn the ships! Sink the ships, in other words. Set them all to a fire. In other words, we're going in with 553 shoulders, 110 sailors, 13 horses, 11 ships. Destroy the ships because we're going to take some ground and set up our new establishment. Could you imagine being one of the soldiers who says, wait a minute, why is it we need to retreat and go back on the ships and get out of here? There's no turning back. There was one plan. We're going to take ground, burned the ships. The crew watched as these ships sank and came to the realization that retreating was not an option for them. Turning and going the other way, there was no turning and going the other way. And there's lessons to be learned in this story. See, nine out of ten times, failure many times is resorting to our plan B. Well, here's my plan A, but if this doesn't work, then I'll fall back to plan B or plan C because when it gets too risky, We'll just abort plan A because it's too costly or too difficult. That's why most people probably are living out maybe their plan B or C or D or down the road because they didn't burn the ships. 
They always had that, that fallback plan. Plan A people don't have a plan B. They would rather crash and burn going after their plan that God-ordained dreams that then succeed at something else. And when you know that God puts a dream on your heart, and says, here's where I want you to go. God wants us to go all in with plan A, with our eyes fixed upon Jesus, and stay the course. Now, don't misunderstand me. There are moments in life when we need to burn the ships to our past. We make a def defining decision that will eliminate the possibility of sailing back to the old world that we left behind. You burn the ships. Burn the ship of past failure. Burn the ship of past success. Burn the ship of a bad habit. Burn the ship of a regret. Burn the ship of guilt. Or burn the ship of my old way of life. I'm not, I'm not going back to it any longer. What I'm talking about is what we see happen in the life of Elisha. It happens in the Old Testament prophet. Have you ever heard of the prophet Elijah? The prophet Elijah is known as the fearless prophet of fire. On Mount Carmel, he battled the false prophets of Baal. And when the fire of God fell, it was a miraculous victory for the people of God. And just after that victory, Elijah fled for his life into the wilderness based upon the threat of one woman. He knew she was coming after him. She wasn't just some run-of-the-mill ordinary lady. She was the wife of the king. Her name was Jezebel. And he said, I've got to get out of here. And he took off to the woods. The king of Ahab was her husband. He went out in the wilderness. He sits underneath a tree and he begs God, God, take my life. God, get me out of here. God, I I'm done. I did the battle. The fire fell. And now she's after me. And God, take my life before she tortures me and destroys me. And, she, and he's terrified. And God let him know that he was not the only righteous person left. Because his concern was, is there anybody else who are God-fearing people? There were actually some 7,000 faithful followers who had not bowed the knee to Baal in Israel. And God encourages Elijah, and he told Elijah to go home and to anoint two kings. Hazel of Syria and Jehu to be the king of Israel. And then God told him to go and find a man by the name of Elisha and anoint him the prophet who would take his place. In other words, there's going to be a passing of the baton. Elijah, you're not going to continue to be the prophet. I have somebody else to carry on your role. Batterson says in his book, All In, it doesn't matter whether you're trying to lose weight, get into graduate school, write a book, start a business, or get out of debt. The first step is always the longest and the hardest. And you can't just take a step forward into the future. You also have to eliminate the possibility of moving backward into the past. That's how you go after goals. That's how you break addictions. That's how you reconcile relationships. You leave the past in the past by burning the ships. And our text today in 1 Kings 19. I want to encourage you to turn your Bibles there. 1 Kings 19, Elisha doesn't really burn any ships, but he comes close. And this is a great story of somebody who said, I'm moving on with plan A, and there is no plan B. Look at your text with me, 1 Kings 19, starting with verse 19. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. 
Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. The first thing I want you to see in this text is the call. Elisha is called. See, when Elijah found Elisha, he was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. Some people wait around for God's call to do something. We're like, someday God's going to do something. Someday God has use for me. Well, the interesting thing is that when he looks and he finds Elisha, he's not just sitting on his hands going, God's going to do something with me. He's actually working his hands to the plow while he's waiting on a call for life. And it's interesting that he is actually in the throngs of working. He keeps pushing forward knowing God has something planned. But in the meantime, I work the ground. The name Elisha actually means that God is my salvation. And so Elijah walks up to him, sees that he's working, takes his outer cloak off, places it on the shoulders of Elisha, and just keeps on walking. And so he's, he's, he's got the ox working, and, and he walks up, puts that cloak on him, and Elisha knew that something immediately had happened, and Elijah keeps walking, and so he actually leaves the oxen and the plowing equipment, and he runs after Elijah and stops him, hold on, and when he gets to him, he says, wait, can I say goodbye to my family? Because he knew the process, that there's this process of a passing of the baton. What's going on here is that any time a prophet placed a cloak on somebody else's shoulders, it symbolized the passing of the place of the authority and the office of the individual, and that now this is going to be your role. It was passing the baton of leadership. He was telling Elisha, now it's your turn to be the prophet of God. And because Elisha knew church and how it worked in God's kingdom, he knew, I'm being called to something greater than working the fields. And Elijah was saying, Elisha, God has called you to take my place. And so Elisha wants to say goodbye to his family. He tells Elijah to tell him, he says, please, please let me go. And then he says, what? He says, what have I done to you? In other words, he's saying, I'm not stopping you. He said, I'm not stopping you. Go ahead. You go say goodbye to your family. Have your goodbyes. And now notice the commitment in verse 21. So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. He had a barbecue. Here's all the oxen. Let's cook them all up. What did he use? He used equipment to set the fire. I imagine what he did was he said to his family and to his friends, hey, listen, come on over here. And they're going, what is going on? You're cooking up all of your livestock and you're burning all of your equipment. And they ate it. And I imagine that while they're eating it, he's telling them, let me tell you why I did this. I was out in the field and I was plowing along and Elijah come up and put the cloak on me. And because you put the cloak on me, I know that's the call of God. And so I'm supposed to be the prophet and I'm supposed to leave all of this. And let it all go. The fact that Elisha had 12 oxen tells us this was not a small farm. Typically in that time they would have had small farms, maybe one or two oxen. He has 12 oxen. He was probably part of a family of great wealth. 
Don't miss this. When he burned the plowing equipment and slaughtered his oxen, he wasn't just quitting his job. He was probably separating himself from the family's share of the estate. He was probably writing himself out of the will by saying, I don't want any of this. You've supplied this for me, Mom and Dad. One reason why I am here is because of what you've done. I want none of it because God has a bigger calling on my life. Most of us, I would say, are not like that. Most of us kind of hedge our bets, or we have a a second plan. We usually want something to fall back on just in case what we're doing doesn't work out. Not Elisha. He was all in. He said, I'll let go of the oxen. I'll let go of all my equipment. I'll burn it. I'll slaughter it. And I'm moving on. And tells his family goodbye. There was no turning back. He burned the ships so to speak, or burn the yoke and the oxen. He couldn't go back to his old way of life because he just burned it up in a big bonfire and said, it's done. I'm moving on past this stage of life. See, as long as you leave yourself a way out or a way back, you will never be all in. And may I say to you, church, God wants you all in. He wants you 100% committed, not one foot holding on to the past, not a little something that you're dragging along, not looking back saying, well, I have some of this. He wants us 100%, 100% in for him. Batterson says in his book, burning the plowing equipment was handing in his resignation as CEO of Elisha Farms. And Elisha gave it up for an unpaid internship with an itinerant prophet named Elijah. And one day he went from the very top of the totem pole to the very bottom. He went from calling the shots to making coffee and copies. As an intern, he got the jobs no one else wanted to do. But if you do the job no one wants, you might eventually get the job that everybody wants. He let it all go to go and follow Elijah and to be trained up, become the prophet. Now turn your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 2. Because as the story continues here in the journey, you start to see what else he committed to and how he walked. We see the challenge in 2 Kings chapter 2. The time has come that the Lord is going to take Elijah up to heaven after spending some time with Elijah. So there's this passing baton, but there's a training phase in between there where Elisha hangs out with Elijah for a while and gets trained up on how to, how to live a life as a prophet. And there's some details, though, we don't want to miss in 2 Kings chapter 2. It says, when the Lord, starting in verse 1, was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, the Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, as surely as the Lord lives and you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Now we're going to see here in our text, there's a couple times when Elijah tells Elisha, listen, you stay back. And he's like, no, I can't leave you. No, you stay back. No, I'm staying with you. I'm not leaving you. The company of the prophets of Bethel came out to Elisha and asked, Do you know what the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, Elisha replied, so be quiet. It's almost like, I know this is happening. I know it's going to take place. I know this day has been coming when you put the cloak on my shoulders. I'm going to take on the role to now be the prophet. And I've been walking with Elijah for some time, and I know that he's going to be leaving, but let's not talk about it. I know the day is coming. I know I'm being trained for that. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, Elisha. The Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he replied, As surely as the Lord lives and you live, I will not leave you. Wait a minute. He wanted to go to Bethel. I'm not leaving you. 
He's going to go to Jericho. I'm not leaving you. I'm staying with you. Because there was a closeness and a oneness in their relationship. And he's like, I'm walking close with you. Then a company of prophets at Jericho went up to Elisha and asked him, do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, I know, he replied. So be quiet. I don't want to talk about it. I know the day is coming. Then Elijah said to him, stay here. The Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he replied, as surely as the Lord lives and you live, I will not leave you. So the two of them walked on from one city to another city to another city. Fifty men from the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance, facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, and, stuck the wa- and, and struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left, and two of them crossed over on dry ground. Now, we're very familiar with the Red Sea, but many times we don't even know about this dividing of the water. Walked across on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me what can I do for you before I am taken from you? Let, tell me what can I do? Elijah stops like, Elisha, you're sticking to me like a fly. I mean, I tried to tell you to stay back at Bethel. I tried to get you to stay back and, and, and not come with me to Jordan. I tried to get you not come to Jericho. And you keep sticking with me. And it's almost getting the other side. Now we're across the other side. And it's like, what else can I do? I, I've taught you everything I've taught you. I don't know what else I can possibly do for you. And he says, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. That's a huge request. You realize what he just did? He just asked for a double anointing on his life. He says, not only do I want to accomplish what you accomplished, Elijah, but I want to accomplish twice as much as you. Can you anoint me with that kind of power from God? He asked for a double portion of God's blessing. For some, we'd say, man, that's being awful, uh, awful selfish. I mean, you've already been given the the prophet status. You're carrying the name of God. He wanted a double blessing compared to what Elijah had. How could he ask for something like that? How could he possibly do that? What right did he have to even request it? I believe he had the right because he was all in. He was all in for God when God called him. He didn't have a plan B. He stayed on plan A. He burned The equipment. He slaughtered the oxen. He said, if I'm called, I'm going. Let me share something with you that I believe to be very true. And I believe when I share it, you'll say, yeah, that's probably true in my life too. See, I think the reason some of the prayers that you and I have prayed that haven't been answered is simply for the fact that we're not really all in. We have a toe in the water. Maybe we have a foot in the water. Maybe we're treading up to our knees with God, but we haven't jumped all the way. And we're kind of holding back. And God says, if you're holding back, then why am I going to answer your prayers? Because you're really not committed. The reason some of the dreams that we dreamed, some of the goals that we set forth, some of the things that God has placed in our heart that haven't come to fruition is simply because we haven't been all in. And church, God is calling us to be a church, to be a body of believers that is all in, that is 100% committed, that is not playing the game of Christianity, but that is giving all of it to God. Until we're all in, why would he even consider, why would we even consider making such a request? And sometimes we're stuck where we are because we're not all in. That's what happened with Elisha. What would it look like? 
What would it look like for you and I, for the church in America, what would it look like for the body of Centerpoint Christian Church to be all in? Craig Groeschel said, stop skipping church whenever you feel like it because you stayed up late the night before. Or there's a game on, or your team lost. He didn't really say that. I was wondering what church attendance would be today. Or because you want to go to the lake. Or for whatever reason you want to make up. Stop being a phony. Wholeheartedly commit your life to Christ. Stop just going to church and consuming. Get yourself and your family involved. Make a difference. Serve. Tithe. Give offerings. Pray. Engage in the life of the church. Grow spiritually. Stop pretending and do something different. Pretty large call that Groeschel says, but I think it's what the call is that God's telling us. Stop playing the game. If you've said yes to Jesus, then be 100% yes to Jesus, not partially committed. Patterson says the more money you make, the harder it is to trust Almighty God, and the easier it is to trust Almighty Dollar. Isn't it ironic that in God we trust is printed on the very thing that we find is most difficult to trust God with? Let me be blunt, he says, because on the subject of money, Jesus was. Obedience can be measured in dollars. So can faith. And so can sacrifice. It's certainly not the only measure, but it's surely one of the most accurate. If we give God just 2% of our income, can we really say we are 100% committed to him? I think not. If we withhold the tithe, can we really say, in God we trust? If we give God our leftovers instead of our first fruits, can we really say we are seeking first his kingdom? He goes on and says, God doesn't need our money, but he wants our heart. And where your treasure is, there our heart will be also. Happiness is not the byproduct of making more money. It is the byproduct of giving more money no matter how much money we make. And so Batterson again comes back to the thought, all in is tied to our pocketbook. See, Elisha didn't hold out on God, so God didn't hold out on Elisha. Sometimes in a life what happens to Christians, people who claim to be followers of Christ, they get back and return what they've been giving to God. How in the world can we expect more than what we, what we possibly get? You, you've heard the old phrase, double or nothing. If you double nothing, it's still nothing. See, when we give nothing to God, when He's not number one, when we don't put Him first, then we pray, God, bless my marriage. God, bless my business. God, please bless my kids. God, please bless my future. God, bless me, bless me, bless me. How can we do that? Because I think God's going, wait, are you all in? Are you fully committed? I mean, God says, I'm fully committed. I gave you my son Jesus. He died on the cross for you. But are you really committed? Or are you just playing the game of Christianity? God only blesses us like Elisha and we're all in. Elisha was all in and God gave him a double portion. He received a double portion of a blessing. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, he performed 28 specific miracles compared to Elijah who, comp who performed only 14. Uh, he, he parted the Jordan River. He raised a boy from the dead. He made an iron axe float. All kinds of cool, creative things that he did as you read through the book of Kings. He was granted a double portion because he was all in, and God used Elisha incredibly for 60 years to be a prophet of God because he was all in. God wants to use every one of us in this room right now. You might be a banker. You might be a school teacher. You might be 
working in the factory. Maybe you're building cars. You might be struggling today without a job. You may not have the job you want, the desire that you want. But I want you to know that today that God wants to use you for his kingdom. But he can only really use us when we're all in, when we're committed. Say, God, I'm all yours. When you say, here am I, Lord, send me. When we take up our cross and say, God, I'll take up my cross and I'm following you 100%. When we don't look back with a plan B, when we say, God, I'm going for it. One of the most terrifying moments in my life is when we started Centerpoint Christian Church nearly 13 years ago and we left the comforts of a church that was running 1,200 and we had solid income and me and my wife and our three little babies, Luke, Caleb, and Lily Grace, who were in diapers and pull-ups, said, let's go do it. We didn't have a plan B. And when you don't have plan B, you work your tail off and you pray fervently. When we have plan B, we kind of back up. And I don't think God wants us to operate with a plan B type mindset when it comes to our relationship with him. See, you are one decision away from a totally different life. One decision. God, I want to be all in for you, not partial. I want 100% of my life for you. So are we going to be all in for God? Let, let me be really specific this morning about some ways you can be all in for God. First of all, go all in with your commitment to Christ. Let me speak to two groups of people with that. For some of you in this room, you haven't made that commitment to Christ yet. You've been investigating, you've been hanging around, you've been seeking out things of God, but you have not confessed and repented of your sin, accepted Jesus as Savior, putting your faith in Him, been baptized by immersion, as the Scripture calls us to. Today, that could be your all-in step. And you say, well, I didn't really come prepared for that. We're prepared we have clothes that are ready, we have towels that are ready, and I made sure the baptistry is on because if I baptize somebody, I didn't want it to be too cold. Today could be your day that you just say, you know what, i got to get all in, and I've kind of been playing this game, but I really haven't taken that step of faith, and today could be my day. And so when we move to our time of communion, and today is your day, you get up and you walk to the back of the room and say, Brian, today's my day. Matter of fact, second service, we know of a child who is doing that. But what about some of us adults even in this room? who haven't taken that step to completely go all in with God and make a public proclamation of your faith. The second group of people that need to go on with your commitment to Christ are those who've been walking in with Christ maybe for some time. Maybe you came to Jesus a year ago or five years ago or 10 years ago or 40 years ago or 50 years ago, and Jesus has just kind of come like, oh, ho-hum, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yep, I go to church. Yep, I sing some songs. Yep, every now and then I read my Bible. Become pretty nonchalant about your faith, so to speak. Because it's easy to do. It's easy to set into that just cruise control mindset. And maybe God's calling you to go all in and say, you know what, it's time for a fresh anointing on your life. It's time to renew your walk with God. It's time to say, God, i got to get serious and quit playing the game. God, I just kind of, I'm, I'm a chair sitter, God. I just kind of sit in the chair, I'm here, but I'm not serving, I'm not giving, I'm not engaging in the life of the church, and it's time. I need to get in a growth group, I need to be studying the Word, I need to be giving an offering, I need to get plugged in to the life of the church and grow my commitment to Christ. That could be one area of going all in. Another area to go all in is I want to encourage your church to go all in in your prayers for our community. We did our groundbreaking two weeks ago for the addition to the building, and I've said it and I'll say it, over and over and over again. If all we do is break ground and build a building and we don't get serious about praying for our community, then we're wasting our time and our energies and God's money. 
And so we went through an exercise on that groundbreaking. And I asked you to put names of people on the stakes who need to know Jesus Christ, people who need to know the love of Christ. And so we've taken stakes like this, and we have more. We're going to have them out for several weeks because hopefully you'll think of more people. Taking stakes like this and, and encourage you to write their name on them. And this week, you can see they're around the worship center. Matter of fact, uh, just come over here and look. Here's a few. We have plenty of room to add more. Why do we do that? Because as we go into construction, you'll start seeing stakes, and you say, what's going on with that? Okay, pray about this. We have a little delay because downtown, okay, government, just pray, God, remove all the delays. We're ready to move dirt as soon as they sign a couple pieces of paperwork, okay? You're going to see construction, but while we're doing construction over there, why don't we do the construction work of prayer for people? Are you with me? Are you all with me? Should we not do the construction work of people's hearts in prayer and pray for people who need to know the love of Christ? And so there's stakes back there, and you add names to them, write the names on it, drop in a bucket, we'll add these. I would love to have hundreds of names around this room, and that when we come in here each and every week, that maybe part of your worship is you look around, you see names, you pick some, and you start praying specifically for the people that are on these stakes, that they would come to know the love of Jesus Christ. Now, this became very real for me this week because sometimes we can do this kind of exercise and it's easy to have it up on the wall and say, well, that's just an exercise we're doing and we can forget. There was a lady who came to church last week and it was her first Sunday. She came in this week to talk about her walk with God and we talked about that pretty extensively. And I said, can you come in the worship center with me? And it was just after finished a couple volunteers that put this up and worked really hard just after we put these stakes up on the walls, I said, come in here. And I said, I'm not sure if your name's on a stake. She said, no, it's probably not. I said, let me tell you what these stakes are for. This is for us to be praying for our neighbors and our community. And she lives right down here in the townhomes that are a couple hundred yards away. I said, your name not be on a, may not be on a stake, but we're praying for this community. And so we may not pray specifically by name, but we're praying for you. And I don't believe you came last week by accident. She said, no, I didn't. She said, my name's not on a stake, but my family's name is. I said, what? She said, yeah, I wrote all my kids and my grandkids on there, but my, my kids don't want me to speak the name of Jesus to my grandkids. And she said, so that stake should be here. And we started, we went around the room, looked for every single stake and found her stake on that back wall in the middle. And there's the five names that she put on the stake. It became very real. They're a couple hundred yards away, a whole family a lady who's not been walking with Jesus for a long time but believes in Jesus said, I need the church. But wants her grandkids to know Jesus. Wants her daughter and her son-in-law to know Jesus. And you've listed some people on these stakes. I saw one earlier today because we were praying over these stakes before we started church. Someone said, my dad. I saw the name Jack on there. I saw the name Tom on the wall. There's uh, Nana that was on the wall. It was one of the names. I can't possibly remember all of them. But every single name on that stake represents somebody that you know. You may not know every name, but God knows every name. And the thing is, because we have relationships, we know hundreds, if not thousands, of people that are connected somehow to the body of Centerpoint. And so, church, I want to ask you to go all in. We're going to leave this up probably the next three to six months. We're going to engage you in praying for it, but I also want you to know the church building is open every day from 8 to 4. Say, I want to come over here and just spend some time and just make this your prayer room. You're welcome to come at any time and just work your way around the room, kneel, I don't care, stand and worship, just to come in here pray. Your small group that meets here, maybe part of your small group is, hey, let's go into worship and let's pray over these names. 
small groups here. Or if your small group doesn't meet here, maybe your small group meeting that night is let's meet at the church and just holler ahead and we'll make sure it's unlocked. We'll make sure you can get in so you can come in here and make it a, a thing of prayer. And so I encourage you, church, to add names to the stake and stake your ground in prayer for somebody. The last way I want to encourage you is to go all in with the dollars that God blesses you with. You realize every dollar that you have, the house that you live in, the cars that we drive, the food on our table, everything all belongs to God. It's all His anyway. Last week, I encouraged you greatly in tithing your income. God asked us to give back a tithe, 10%. So if you make $100, you give back $10 to His kingdom work. If you make $1,000, you give back $100 to His kingdom work. That's what He asked for. But national stats say that Christians give less than 2% of their income. Are we all in if we're only given 2% when He asks us to give 10%? So I encourage you to give with your dollars, but to go above and beyond that even, and that's called an offering. Ask us to tithe first, secondly to bring an offering, and that's what we're working towards towards the building. And let me remind you, when we started this building addition in 2013, some of you are new to our church, and so this will give you some catch-up information. When we started in May of 2013, we made the commitment that we would build this building and do that debt-free, did we not? Some of you all remember that, right? So we don't want to take any more debt. And so at that time in 2013, as we priced out the building at that time and got guesstimations the best we could, we were looking at $500,000 approximately to build that addition. Well, 2013 goes by, 2014, 2015, 2016, 2017. We are in now four years later. And what happens to construction cost? You all know what happens to construction cost? It goes up, Right. It's impossible for it to go back. And unfortunately, it goes up significantly. And so now that $500,000 number has changed to somewhere in the range of $600,000 to $625,000. But our leaders, if we prayed, said, we've got to get moving and we've got to get going. We have enough money to move and faithfully to move forward, trusting that God's going to provide. And if we run out of money to stop the project, you can say that's where we stop until we have enough money to finish it. But with another hundred dollars to $125,000, we'll be right there. We have about $470,000 in a bank account. About another $130,000, we'll be right at $600,000. Can we do that as a church over six months? Your leaders believe you can. Our leaders have already, being our, our finance team and our elders and our billing team, have already said we're ready to put commitments in of already $10,000 towards that. I want to ask you to take a stake that's on the back table back there, and every stake has $1,000 written on it. We have about 130 families that are actively involved at Centerpoint, the best we can track. It may be a few more than that, but about 130 families. If every family were over the next six months to prayerfully ask God, God, would you provide $1,000 through me and my family, we would be right at the goal, and by Easter next year when we move in, we'll also have it paid for. And so I want to ask you today to prayerfully take a stake with you and take one home. It's written $1,000 on it. And put that somewhere where you'll be reminded. And you make it a prayer. You say, Brian, my budget is so tight. There's no way I can do $1,000. I'm with you. I have three teenagers at home. And we have three, they're going to start graduating in the next three years. And we're looking at college over the next three years if they decide to do that. And I look at my budget and some of my debts and go, God, how am I going to do this? We're committed to pray, God, would you provide $1,000 for my family? Some of you today could write a check for that and not bat an eye. You can go, here's $1,000, no big deal. 
then I want to challenge you to pray bigger. Some of you pray to stretch yourself. For some of you, a $1,000 prayer. For some of you, say, there's no way $1,000 would greatly stretch me. That would be a miracle upon miracle, a double portion. We'll pray for that. But maybe it is. Okay, God, I'm not sure I could do $500. i am going to pray for that. Take a stake and let it be your reminder. For some of you, that number maybe needs to be 5,000. God, 1,000 would be real easy. I know I got this bonus coming and this. That'd be no problem. For some of you, you need to pray for $5,000. For some of you in this room, maybe you need to be praying for $10,000 and going, you know, 5,000 is nothing. I could write that on my checking account or my savings, and that's no big deal. For some others, that would be impossible. And so, church, I want to ask you take a stake with you. Maybe stick it in your front flower bed so as you walk in your house or you pull up your drive, maybe, maybe stick it down in the middle of your front yard just every time you look in your front yard you see the stake and it's a, rem- a reminder. Maybe you take it and somehow you tape it to your wall or you put it by your mirror. You put it somewhere. If you say, you know what, I'm going to take five stakes because I want to have five reminders. I want to make five commitments. Will you be all in with your pocketbook, with your dollars? Because together we can reach the goal. Together we can overcome. There have been many who have gone over the last four years and have given sacrificially and have prayed sacrificially, but there's no plan B. So we've talked about that some in our leadership meetings, and we said right now God has told us we need to do this debt-free. We're praying to do it debt-free. We're moving forward with the goal of doing it debt-free. And so we're just asking you, church, because the plan A is that we as a church do this together, that we be all in. See, halfway is no way to live. Halfway is no way to live. If my son's football team said, well, let's just do this halfway, they'd be a terrible team. If you go about your business halfway, well, let me just do kind of half of the sales calls this week, then your budget or your income will be halfway. Or if you do halfway on the hourly job, then most companies may say, you know what, you no longer work here because you're giving a halfway effort. So don't be halfway in your commitment to Christ. Don't be halfway in your prayers for our community. And don't settle for halfway with your pocketbook with God. Church, I want to ask you to be all in. God won't settle for some. And he doesn't settle for most. It's kind of an all-or-nothing proposition in our life. And that's the way God gave us Jesus. He didn't give us just a little bit of Jesus, or some of Jesus, or most of Jesus. He gave us all of Jesus. Will you be all in? All in for the kingdom. All in for God. All in for Jesus.